0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Katz, a host for this channel. Today, I'll be talking to Professor Sheikh Anta Babu about his new book, The Meridia on the Move, Islam, Migration, and Placemaking. Professor Babu, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me, Sarah.
0: So to start, I wonder if you'll tell us a little bit about your background and kind of how it is that you came to become a historian.
1: Thank you, Sarah, for this question. Um, I think I really developed my interest in the study of history when I was a little boy growing up in a small town in West central Senegal. my father did not have a formal education but he was a historian in his own right. He knew a lot about the pre-colonial and colonial history of Senegal. He was a devout follower of Ahmadou Bamba and the Mouridiyya and you know growing up as the little child and he was a little old and less mobile, traveling less. I really learned a lot just sitting with him and him telling stories and sometimes arguing with historians on, on Senegalese radio, and t- radio at that time and just learning from him. And also my, my brother, my older brother, is, uh, was an elementary school teacher. And our house was the hangout for all his friends. And uh, being the little boy around, I was the one making tea for them. I was then going to elementary school and later on to middle school and high school, and just listening to them arguing politics, you know, about you know the French colonization in Senegal, its legacy, uh, 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 complaining about the corruption of Senegalese post-colonial government, but also debating international politics. I mean, the war in Vietnam, for example, what was going on in the Soviet Union, and my brother was a subscriber to many magazines, particularly one that I remember, Africa Z which was a left-leaning magazine where I could go and, and read. At that time, I could read. I was going to school. I could read articles about, you know, uh, what was going on in the Israeli-Palestinian war. mean just growing up and really getting hooked, interesting in the virus of history. And then what all of that did for me was when I started to go to school and to study, I was really very good at history and geography. And I had my best grade. Uh, in the discipline of history and geography.
0: And then, how did you come to write Muridia on the Move, and kind of how does this relate to your previous research? I would
1: say that the idea of, of writing the Muridia on the Move really originated uh, in field work I conducted in central Harlem in the late 1990s, um, working on a seminar paper. Uh, I spent a few days in the section of 116th Street between Malcolm X and Frederick Douglass Boulevard, um, interviewing Senegalese, visiting them in their home and workplaces, and just you know hanging around and, and, and observing street life. And I was really fascinated by what I saw, the way people dressed, the restaurant, um, the mosque, uh, uh, you know, the store and what was sold in those store. I found all of that really quite fascinating. And I was fascinated by the fact that many of these people who actually came to the United States penniless, with no money, and with no English, were able to make so a comfortable life for themselves in the United States in a city where they should have been gotten lost, really, because, I mean, New York City is is a huge metropole, one of the largest in the world. And many of these people came from small towns, small villages in Senegal. I was really fascinated by their ability to adjust and to live and to be comfortable in New York City. So after completing my research, I really wanted to know more about this. And I wanted particularly Uh, to learn about how they were able to achieve what they achieved in New York. Uh, And what I learned very quickly was that these people that I was studying in New York City was truly transnational migrants. These were people that were actually connected uh, to other Senegalese, Moorite immigrants around the world, that they were embedded in transnational network that crisscrossed actually three continents, and that's what took me actually to write this book. So immediately after finishing my field work and writing my paper, um, I start really thinking about a project uh, that would be based on, on my fieldwork. But I couldn't do it because I needed first to finish my dissertation uh, and to finish my first book, which was based in my dissertation. And after all of that was done, I dusted up my old old files, uh, looked at my interviews, and really starting to get to work to try to get this job done and to respond to the question I asked myself in the beginning. Uh, how did this murid actually able to achieve what they achieved in New York, given their own backgrounds. So, th- so this book basically is a response to that question I ask myself.
0: So this, that- this book started while you were also writing a kind of deeper history about Ahmadou Bamba. That was your, your first book. Exactly. Interesting. Um, and then before we get kind of into uh, the meat of the book, I wonder, you know, you've, you've mentioned already just, you know, observing, uh, but I wonder if you could get... Talk more a little bit about uh, your research methods, particularly given that the, the sort of the multi-sided nature of this project sort of makes methods all the more kind of complex.
1: Absolutely, uh, there are clearly challenges in in writing a book set in three continents. Um, you have you know the logistical challenges, just getting the funding, uh, getting the logistics, uh, deciding about where to go and whom to talk to. But I think. The, 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 the most daunting challenge is really the intellectual challenge. Uh, because as you know, uh, immigrants' lives are deeply shaped by uh, the uh, national identities and politics of the countries where they settle. And if one want to write a truly transnational history, uh, one needs to find themes that cut across borders uh, to be able to connect those uh, 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 multi-sided, that, that kind of really kind of multi-sided, that multi-sided history and connect the stories of those, of those different diaspora. And the first intelligent challenge was, was really how do I find themes that can bring this community together, that can allow me to tell a story that cross borders, cross-national identities and cross-national immigration politics and national idiosyncrasies. So I, I knew that I needed to find um, topics that can bring borders, that can bridge borders and allow me to talk, write a uh, truly uh, transnational history as I wanted to do. So I, I kind of uh, come up, thought about really three lines of inquiry. Uh, first, uh, the I wanted really to try to find how these murids were able to make a place for themselves wherever they went. Uh, I wanted to discuss the issues of belonging. Uh, how do they negotiate local political context and local cultural context? And I also wanted to learn more about how are these murids actually uh, both embedded in those transnational networks that crisscross three continents, but at the same time anchored in their cities of Tuba. So I was interested really in looking at this double embeddedness, embeddedness in the diaspora, yet firmly anchored in the city, uh, the holy city of Tuba.
0: And then also, Tua, I wonder if you could reflect on a little bit both on the research as well as the writing process and how doing this book compared to your first book, which was sort of more kind of, you know, classically his- historical for lack of a better way of putting it. Whereas this book certainly is a work of history, but it's kind of a history of the present and it sort of uses a lot of, you know, maybe more, it includes a lot more contemporary um, events. And um, so, yeah, I wonder how what the process was like kind of comparing the two books, both in terms of, of doing the research, but also did you find the writing process itself was different for you?
1: Well, it took a longer time to write this book, (laughs) definitely, much longer time. Um, You know, as we said already, this is multi cited The first book was based in Senegal. What I had to do was um, archival work, mostly in Senegal, some in France, and that was it. Uh, the rest of it is to do field work in the Murid Heartland of Western Senegal. That that is what, what I had what I had to do in order to be able to start sit and writing this book. Now, when you come to the Muridi in the Move, your first challenge is historiographical. Because most of the scholarship on the Muridia on the Move, if you just go to the uh, uh, the bibliography and look at my footnotes, it's mostly work written by social scientists. It's sociologists, it's anthropologists, it's geographers, it's political scientists. It's just how the scholarship is. Historians do write about migration, uh, but they write about it differently. Mostly it's it's in the case of Africa, for example, we have work on pre-colonial migration, we have work on colonial migration, but contemporary migration, it's really the preview of political scientists, anthropologists, and so forth. So I had to find a way to be a historian in a subfield dominated by social scientists. How can can I make my my own voice relevant? And how can I write a history of this migration that engage the historiography, which is mostly social scientists, but at the same time satisfy my method of inquiry and writing as, as a historian? Now, one way of doing it is trying to always connect past and present. Uh, and one that something that helped me do this was, I'm really continuing a chapter in my first book. If you look at my first book, there is a chapter uh, that is the last chapter, I believe, that is based on Ahmad Ubamba living in Jurbel. And what I tried to do in that book was to try to understand how was it possible for Ahmad Ubamba in Jurbel to accommodate colonial rule. This is somebody who is always looking for Dar al-Islam, a place where Islam is comfortable. But yet he was confined in the heart of Dar al-Kufr, the house of unbelief, because Jurbel was an escal, That's a town built by the French. And one of the arguments that I made in that book was space-making was one of the tools that Ahmed Obama actually used to make himself comfortable in Jirmal, using Islamic architecture uh, in order to build his houses, naming places based on Muslim names, organizing religious ceremonies, and so forth. And he was able to carve out within this Dar al-Kufr, or House of Unbelief, he was able to Carve out, gave out, you know, a, a place for Islam. That make him believe that although he's under French custody, he's still a Muslim. He's still comfortable. He still live in place which is part of the land of Islam. So that that idea that I actually took and run with it, and really try to see how these diasporic murids are continuing to leave that experience of Ahmad Obama by trying wherever they go to create a land for Islam where they feel comfortable living.
0: And I imagine too, if the scholarship on migration, you say it's mostly um, done by social scientists. I also imagine it's mostly done by outsiders and not people like yourself who are in a sense part of the Moridia, uh diaspora. So actually, I was also wondering if you could kind of reflect um, you mentioned uh, a little bit in the book about how your own identity as an active member of the Muridea diaspora, um, and that you are kind of uh, consistently in conversation with other Murids, um, and so I wonder kind of how that feedback shaped or informed your research. Like, did you ever kind of maybe present some information and got some pushback from other people, and that kind of you know informed the direction your research took? Yeah.
1: So when you write African history, and and certainly in this case, particularly the history of Islam, um, you you just have to to understand that the historiography will be dominated by others, by Europeans. Uh, It's just the history of the discipline itself and the history of discipline in the context of Africa itself because our universities are much younger than universities in the West and others. Uh, And Africans really started to write about their history only from the 1960s. So that the body of scholarship that you deal with, of course, the situation has changed since. But to a large extent, when it comes to the Muridia, the scholarship is still dominated by voices of Americans, uh, you know, French and, and others, uh, British, who actually wrote about the Muridia. Now, yes, I I, I, I try to explain in the book that, you um, I kind can of, uh, uh, enjoy what I call the position of the insider, uh, that I'm talking to people who sometimes identify with me uh, very much, and with him, with whom I feel kind of bond. Really, uh, there is an advantage to that. Uh, there is a reward to that, uh, because it can open drawer that might not be accessible to others. That's that's uh, 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 the upside of things. But one should be aware also of the pitfall of the insider's uh, positionality, because you might yourself perhaps subconsciously indulge in uh, self censorship or you might be manipulated by people uh, because you would like to preserve connection within the community. You don't want to offend people. Yes, this is the reality that whoever writes about their history, and their people actually confront. It's not something that, uh, that, is, uh, that in, in, in some ways, uh, is, is only relevant to me. It's relevant to any historians actually writing about their people or about their history. Because when one writes about a culture, one shares and shares what tends to be less skeptical and what tends to really listen and to convey the stories that are conveyed to you. But I believe that having this position of an insider, uh, and here I'm really borrowing from uh, 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 the French uh, scholar, Paul Ricoeur, who write a lot about the insider's perspective in history. I don't think that it's a handicap, really. Uh, I think that uh, it doesn't disable uh, ability to write critically, objectively about the history. I think what is important for the historian is whatever your positionality be, is to be aware of the historical method of inquiry and criticism and to apply that criticism to your sources. Whether you are an insider or an outsider, what is just important is to be aware uh, of uh, your kind of method of inquiry, uh, and critical thinking, and objectivity, and your ability to take a distance from your sources and reflect critically. I think this is not something that only uh, should be a concern by the insider. Uh, it should be a concern about any historians rising about the history of a people uh, he actually value.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's maybe turn um, to the book itself. Um, So in the book, you start by kind of giving a sort of a bit of a historical background of the Meridia, particularly in terms of migration and how this sort of reflects on the life of the founder, Sheikh Ahmadou Bamba, which you've already kind of mentioned already. Um, But perhaps could you kind of expand a bit, particularly for listeners who might know next to nothing about that that history?
1: But the Muridia was founded by uh, Sheikh Ahmadou Bamba, and he is a Senegalese holy man um, who lived uh, in the late 19th century. It was mostly He was born around 1850 1855, but was mostly active in the late 19th century. And the late 19th century, coincided with French colonial conquest and rule of, of West Africa. So Ahmadou Bamba, like many Muslims, uh, found it as his duty, as his responsibility uh, to preserve uh, the Islamic identity and culture of the Senegalese people. But unlike many Muslim, particularly militants who call for jihad against the French, he called for peaceful, uh, social, uh, and spiritual renewal through education. So he felt that the best way to respond uh, to the dismal condition of Senegalese society at that time, all well, of society at that time, was not really to take the sword and to try to fight, uh, but to return to God, as he felt, and to do spiritual purification as Sufis actually do, and to try to transform society through education in a form that you call tarbiyah. And tarbiyah for him is a holistic form of education that Aim at transforming the body, the soul, and the mind. And and that's what uh, he envisioned to, to do. And the way of doing it for him was to fund the Muridiyah, uh, which is a, a Sufi order, particularly oriented out toward education and toward a kind of uh, cultural renewal uh, or Islam in the context of, of the Wall of State in Senegal.
0: Um, and then in the book, you describe how kind of after World War II, things sort of start to change a bit, um, and that Maureeds begin to kind of migrate into cities like San Luis and Dakar. Um, so you, can you describe a little bit about kind of how they went about placemaking in these cities that they're arriving to?
1: Yes. Um, well, perhaps I, I need to, uh, to, to preface this by saying that there is a history of mobility in among the world of state in Africa and Senegal before the coming of the French. But what really changed, uh, especially with regard to the Muridia, was the transition from rural rural migration to rural urban migration, where you gradually see Murid moving to the city, and after World War II, not only moving to the city, but settling in the city. Now, the fact that they really became settlers in the city transformed completely their perspective, because now one needed to make the city home. Before that, home was, you know, the holy cities, uh, the, uh, across West Central Senegal. Now the city is home. And the same question that I asked about Ahmed Obama in Jurbel and, and making Dar al-Kufr uh, the land of Islam, he also, the, the Murid, wanted to find ways of making the city, a space for the murid. Because the French did not envision the city as, as a land of murid, wall of farmers, uh, illiterate, uh, as the French would say, unsophisticated. Uh, their place is in the rural area of Senegal. Yeah, they can come in as laborers, but they are not expected to settle and to be part in the city. They are not considered to be part of the citizenry. So that what the murid really tried to do was how do we make the Muridia a, a religion of Senegalese citizens uh, in the uh, post World War II era? The Muridia drove from what they knew the best, Turn their rural institution of Dara, these are the schools that I was talking about uh, earlier, into Daira, a new institution that could be, could serve. As an instrument to continue to protect and develop Murid identity in the city and to give Murid ways of adapting to their new life as ways of making life in the city meaningful.
0: You, you also note, um, especially I think in Dakar, that there's also a way of, of parades, of sort of certain literally taking the space and referencing back to history. Um, by um, the Moorids the in Dakar. Can you describe a little bit about that? Yes.
1: I mean, turning the city into uh, s- the secular uh, French city um, into a murid holy place really entailed a lot of different different actions. It was not only having those diarhas where um, murids actually move every Sunday, uh, to sing Amadu Bamba's Amadu Bamba's uh, or uh, holy poetry uh, to kind of socialize uh, to connect to money in order to support uh, disciple that may run in trouble with the police or just needed funding to start their business. That was the only part of the picture. The only aspect was how do you turn the city space into murid space? These involve different kinds of activities. One of them was parade, you know, uh, and I discuss uh, how actually the Murid uh, transformed a, a traditional French parade for, for example, uh, November 11, uh, which is which commemorates the liberation of Paris. How did they try to transform into a Murid event? Because November 11 also coincide with the date where Amadou Bamba's return from exile in Gabon. Um, how did, did they also organize these annual festivals? One, two, three. two, three, actually, in Dakar, um, and how they try to name their own store in their own neighborhood after Murid names. For example, where I live uh, in Dakar now is not far from a, a, a new neighborhood who was developed by a Murid developer and whose name is Khadim, Kir Khadim, the house of Ahmad Obama. Uh, so you have all this initiative of space making developing. Space making meaning here renaming space, but also infusing new cultural contexts in space. And how do you do that? You do that by singing songs, you do that by parade, you do that by um, uh, uh, exhibiting religious icons, and you do it also through those parades that I was talking about earlier. So all those initiatives actually help to kind of remake, to reshape, to to refashion space in a way that makes space actually align to Murid culture and to Morid uh, identity.
0: Yeah, as you note, there is this sort of tension between sort of both Morid and colonial heritage kind of vying for space. Uh, and you mentioned that the Moridia faced some resistance, especially in San Luis, um, among those that kind of wanted to preserve the city's colonial heritage. So, can you kind of explain those tensions as it pertains to San Luis a bit?
1: Yes, I mean the, the dynamic in Dakar and in in Senouy are quite different. Is quite different. In Saint-Louis, I see the clash of two post post-colonial identities. Saint-Louis, of course, is the first uh, 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 city in the Atlantic coast of, of of Africa colonized by the French. They settled there in the seventeenth century. Uh, Saint-Louis was the capital of French West Africa. It was also the capital of Senegal. Uh, Saint-Louis, along with three other communes in Senegal, benefited from uh, French citizenship. They had the right to vote, including in French national elections. So they elected their own mayor. Uh, They had their own tribunal that followed French common law rather than indigenous law, which was the law applied to French subjects. So they felt, and they fought in the French army, not in the colonial kind of tirailleur army, and they felt A relationship to France, which uh, common Senegalese or Senegalese that live in the protectorate, those are called subjects of France, really do not feel. So they believe that there is an identity here to preserve. They don't see their attachment to France and their attachment to the memory of colonialism as a betrayal of a French, uh, uh, independ- uh, French independence or French citizenry, they consider it as an integral part of their identity. And they don't see a conflict between their kind of post-colonial identity and their colonial identity. This is very different from people like the Murid who actually live in the protectorate and were French subject and to whom uh, indigenous law was applied and who were people who did not enjoy French citizenship so that what the Murid wanted was to erase that colonial memory, which for them represent the oppression of their leader, Sheikh Ahmed Bamba, whom, as, as I said, was judged actually in Saint Louis, uh, uh, sentenced to be uh, exiled in Gabon, where he went for seven years, so that for the Murid, uh, the palace for the governor in Saint Louis, uh, the statue of General Federme, who is really uh, the colonial founder of, of, of Senegal, for for them, all of them, all of that represent oppression. All of them represent a past they would like to com- to forget and to erase. And what they want is to showcase Amadou Bamba as the true liberator of Senegal and the one who should be celebrated because he was the one who brought Senegalese their dignity. So you have this clash of, of really post colonial identities that are that is that is going on in Senegal. In the case of Dakar, is in fact, completely different because in Dakar, uh, it's mostly uh, a kind of city where uh, the or well, the majority population, never actually had the relationship that the citizen of Saint-Louis had with France, although Lebu also at some point benefited from uh, French citizenship just as in Saint-Louis, but they never developed that kind of Francophile uh, identity that the people of Saint-Louis developed.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, so, one of the first places that uh, the Morides begin to migrate um, outside of Senegal is Cote d'Ivoire. So, kind of, how do they end up there? Like, why why Cote d'Ivoire? Um, and then, how do they manage to maintain their connection to Tuba um, in Senegal?
1: Yeah, well, Cote d'Ivoire is interesting, uh, you know, for for a variety of reasons. Uh, one of them being that. It was really the economic engine of French colonial Africa. In the post-colonial era, Côte d'Ivoire had the the most advanced economy uh, in West Africa. Um, And not only Côte d'Ivoire had that history of of being really the kind of economic engine um, of of West Africa, but there is a long history of Senegalese migration to Côte d'Ivoire, which was, to some extent, Uh, encouraged by the French colonial administration. Um, Côte d'Ivoire was conquered uh, well before Senegal was conquered. Senegal had a much developed system of education and many of the human resources that actually France France used in its its colonies that were colonized after after Senegal were actually administered by Senegalese auxiliaries or Senegalese helpers. Uh, It's in Senegal where I called William Ponty School. William Ponty was located. This was the school where uh, colonial uh, civil administrators in all of West Africa were trained. So that there is this kind of pre-colonial, uh, uh, not pre-colonial, but this colonial migration that already existed. Official migration that was uh, to some extent sponsored and encouraged by the French, but also other another type of migration which was not directly, directly. Uh, uh, organized by the French itself. You've got many Senegalese citizens, they were citizens actually, mostly coming from the four communes of St. Louis and Rifisk and Gore and Dakar, who actually also worked with French uh, commercial companies who needed uh, people that have literacy and numeracy and who found them in Senegal. So that while the French administration was hiring Senegalese civil servant, to serve in the colonies, you also have French companies hiring Senegalese workers to work for them in those those colonies, so that you have these two migrations that were underway even before Senegal was independent. Now, the Murid migration, to some extent, was an extension of that migration. Murid started to move, Will go to Bamak to, 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 to uh, Mali and then move to Côte d'Ivoire because they have a border there. And gradually, they followed in the footsteps of that colonial migration. And after independence now, that migration really continued to intensify. And until today, perhaps Côte d'Ivoire is the country where you have uh, uh, most Senegalese immigrants. Great.
0: Um, and... Next, you discuss the Meridia in Gabon, which you kind of note is often referred to by Morids as sort of the backyard of tuba, which is a sort of, yeah, evocative phrase. Um, so how did it get that name?
1: Amadou Bamba was exiled in Gabon for seven years uh, and seven months, and the Meridia would say seven days, <laughs> seven years, seven months, seven days. There is a symbolism of seven here. Uh, and that narrative, the narrative actually of that, that immigration is really foundation, foundational to the Murid, to the Muridia itself. Uh, and uh, Ahmad Obama as, as a martyr uh, of, of French colonial oppression. And that narrative of suffering and triumph is really central to the Murid imaginary. Now you can imagine when Murid started to migrate in Gabon in the 1960s, The first thing they tried to do was to try to trace Amadou Bamba's footprints in Gabon. Where has he been kept? What did he do there? And how can we memorialize this? And Murid themselves in Gabon The told me that Bagon is the backyard at Tuba. Why? Because when we wake up here, we're probably walking on places where Amadou Bamba has walked we are praying on the same sandy uh the same sand the same land when amadou bamba has actually prayed and you have many uh, sacred music, murid sites in gabon in mayombe uh, in lambarene and also in brother in libreville places where amadou bamba actually stayed and for murid uh, the ultimate triumph would be to leave their footprints in the places where the French took Ahmed Obama in order to get rid of him. The ultimate triumph actually uh, would be to to just do that, to go where the French wanted to bring him, uh, to destroy him, and to show their presence there as an ultimate testimony to uh, the enduring success of Ahmed Obama uh, against his uh, French oppressors. So you can understand now why uh, Gabon is so symbolic for all this Muri transnational diaspora.
0: Yeah, and then, sort of in the process of the Muri community sort of developing there, um, you know, how is it that they kind of reclaim the spaces that Ahmadu Bamba sort of had sort of passed through? First of all,
1: history is important here. Uh, what what are the, those Muri told me is that when they started to Uh, gradually migrate to to Gabon uh, and starting to deliver with the capital, they ask the elders, do you know where Ahmadoumou actually settled, where he has been? What did he do? They look at their history, and then they look at also the Muri hagiography, where you have depiction of Gabon and what happened. And they try to match the hagiography with the space. That's where all uh, started. So the first place they wanted to uh, actually own, was the place where they say Amadou Bamba stayed when he first came to, to Libreville, to Gabon, where they say, which used to be his makeshift mosque, and where he say, is the site where the French actually tried to, um, to kill him using a firing squad. And then the well, which was there, uh, which Amadou Bamba used actually to do his abolition, they wanted to own it because this was the most sacred place of, of the Muridia, besides, you know, where Amadou Bamba is buried in Senegal. I, I talk about the saga, the whole kind of... Uh, 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 the struggle to get this place which was owned by a Christian who lived in France and then did not want his house to be transformed into a mosque and then Murid started finding a way of buying it when it was on the market they just rushed actually to buy it and after they bought it they have built there uh, a, a mosque and they have invested there the, the kind of uh, the most money then Murid actually has invested outside of Senegal. And then the, beyond that, you have also the other sites. And Murid are still struggling uh, to some extent to memorialize those sites, but it's more difficult because uh, uh, one of them is located in, in the heart of the tropical, the equatorial forest of, of, of um. Of Gabon. They visit it, they go and they come. The other one is a city that is not that far from Libreville, uh, which actually they try also to memorialize. And there is a negotiation, for example, with the mayor of that city to try to pay, put a plaque there, maybe build a mosque. The, this kind of a walk of, of, of memory is, is continuing and every Murid generation uh, is really trying to, to make sure that the memory of Ahmad Obama is is inscribed in space. His footprints is in, are inscribed in space and the memory will, will last uh, forever. One thing that I, I, I write about also is that Murid, Murid market in Libreville, uh, the art market, and the story is, is uh, quite fascinating uh, because uh, it was difficult for them to get the space, just as in, in the case of Dakar, Murids are not supposed to be in the in the city center, which is really the heart of the city, and which is a place for for the French and for uh, French-educated Africans, for sophisticated people. These Murids are traders, most of them don't even have a, a license to trade. They are mostly merchant and do not have much earn much respect. And all the struggle to get that very prized kind of real estate space and then naming it uh, based on their own culture and managing it, all of that was really significant also for uh, turning Liberville into a place for the Muridia in the kind of place making strategy.
0: Yeah, it's actually a nice uh, segue to my next question, which is, yeah, then in the book, you sort of um, move on to two chapters that kind of concern the, the Meridia in France. And kind of one interesting connection between this diaspora, as well as the different diasporas in um, Africa, as well as uh, later a bit um, New York City, is this like, this global art market and sort of how they are able to um, sort of latched onto that and profit on that, which I found that like a very interesting thread that connects um, a number of your of your case studies. So yeah, I was wondering if you could sort of expand a bit on kind of how does this trade develop and how is it that the Muridia are able to excel in this market? And I wonder too, how, how do you find this maybe contributing to maybe larger discussions about um, sort of Muslims and art? I know that's a lot, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, uh,
1: uh, I, I trace the origin of these this three diaspora, uh, particularly in France because what you see happening in France is different from what you see in Cote d'Ivoire um, the occupation of murids are different uh, what really started the the French uh, the France network was was really art trade our trade by a specific people uh, they are called the Laube it's an ethnic group in Senegal which really specialize in wood carving and these are the first uh, entrepreneurs I call them to really discover uh, the gold field. That the trade in African art represented, uh, and this happened after the World Festival of Negro Arts—that's how we say or call it—in uh, 1966. Uh, I've been looking at the connection: how it is that these first muri traders who went to France actually went there just after 1966. My my guess is the coming of uh, Europeans uh, buying arts. In, in Senegal, really opened them up to the possibility of a market for the trade. So that many of these people that were specialized first in wood carving transform into specializing in carving masks and carving artifacts that might be of interest to European buyers. And also turning into collectors. They started to travel across West Africa to buy arts, to sell uh, the Europeans. This is really how the whole art trade uh, started. And now gradually other murid followed suit. Uh, I talk about two herbs, for example the herbs in Paris, but also the herb in Strasbourg. Uh, you know, historians and, and anthropologists, and social scientists debate about the connection between this trade and the murid identity itself. Some of them see it just as a continuation of the disciple-master relationship. Uh, uh, Large traders in Strasbourg and in France playing the role of the sheikh, and retailers in the street of France becoming the disciple. I think it's more complicated than that. You know, you see that I push back really in this culturalist approach uh, to migration, and I think it's it's perhaps you know, simpler than, uh, than that. It's just people looking, seeing an opportunity uh, to earn uh, uh, resources, uh, at the same time, preserving the religious identity to just take advantage of it. I don't think that the Murid relationship had any role to play in this. And in fact, my own research and the research of many scholars, I, I actually quote in my work, show that this was not something that was thought about organized and directed by leaders. This is really a a, a bottom-up kind of grassroots migration where disciples themselves actually discovered opportunities to move around and, and sell these artifacts and just took advantage of it. Now, over time, uh, the trade uh, in, in masks, in, in artifact gave way to other different trades. Uh, you see just people selling things in markets. You see taxi drivers. You see uh, restaurant workers. And you see even people working, working in the French industry, uh, automobile industry earlier on, uh, branching out and, and really taking advantage of these opportunities to, to use those networks, actually, to travel, uh, to travel across uh, Europe. Uh, across Africa and then across Europe, and even now beyond Europe in the United States even.
0: There is another theme that gets raised um, in the section on France that comes up in other parts of the book as well, uh, which is that there is this tension within the diaspora over how much to proselytize and sort of assimilate to the host community. Um, So can you describe kind of how this tension plays out in France?
1: Yeah. Well, this is really something that surprises me. I mean, when you write a book, sometimes you get surprised by things. I I did not know, uh, really, that you've got these clashes of murid identity uh, in the diaspora. Uh, You have those uh, that I call universalist, uh, some of them Western-educated, some of them actually born in the diaspora, who believe that the mission of Murid disciple in the diaspora is to spread the good tidings, the good work of Amadou Bamba, to proselytize, to broaden the tent. That that should be the mission. And in order to do that, you need to have some skills. You need to learn the local languages. You need to translate Amadou Bamba's work in local languages. You need to align Murid, Murid identity with global Muslim identity. You need to uh, take, to some extent, uh, distance yourself from a wall of identity, which is very much uh, consubstantial to Murid identity. You have those universalist. Then you have those who believe that the mission of disciple is to preserve Murid identity, to make sure that our children are not lost, to make sure that we don't lose our face in the diaspora, to consolidate our relationship, our relationship with the center of the Muridea, to contribute uh, to, to the, the, the kind of the shining of the Muridea in Senegal, help the Sheikh build mosque, help them develop the charity, help them really continue to grow in Senegal. But make sure also that people who live in the diaspora don't lose their history, don't lose their culture. Our work should be that, should be our priority should be that, rather than going to try to proselytize, uh, to translate into English, into French. You don't need that. And that clash is is real uh, in the diaspora, both in France and in, in the United States. Now, the difference you have in France, in France really, in the leadership of the Mouride in France is mostly made of uh, young men, uh, and particularly young men. You do have the role of women. I write a little bit about that. But particularly young men who most of them actually uh, have a graduate education. Uh, most of them are sociologists or anthropologists, some of them political scientists. And they grew up in France. They know about the political debate about Muslims in France. And and they imagine the Muridia as part of the debate and the discussion. And they want to show a face of the Muridia that can fit in the French French idea of vivre ensemble. How can we live together? As a diverse community, but a community that are, is aware of what they share together and go with that. And they believe that by staying in their wall of Murid identity, the Muridia is actually, uh, uh, those who, who actually uh, uh, lead the Murid in Senegal, is taking them away from that global dialogue uh, in which the Muridia can actually thrive and become uh, a major actor and a major player in the scene.
0: And you also you mentioned that there you go into kind of detail about these sort of two houses um, in Paris that have very different approaches to kind of how uh, to kind of go about placemaking in the diaspora there. So can you maybe describe? Yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have Taverny
1: and Olness Vuba. In Taverny, uh, the leader is an anthropologist, uh, you know, political scientist somewhere uh, who is very much committed to modernity. Um, for him, the center should be the library. He invests a lot of money in, in the library, in organizing talk. <laughs> I've been there, I think, three times to give talk. And he would like to put Muslim intellectuals in dialogue uh, with other Muslims and beyond, even with secular France. Uh, for him, uh, the center should be open to everybody. It should reflect Islam as a universal religion. Uh, op- open to everybody. For example, uh, when you go to the center, you will see not only Senegalese and Africans, you will see also Southeast Asian, South Asian, and even people from the Balkan, actually people from Bosnia and Herzegovina and so forth, Muslim from there uh, in Central Europe, actually praying there. The um, sermon is done in French, not in Wolof the local Senegalese language, and in Arabic sometimes. And you see, the caller of prayer could be anybody. It could be an Arab from North Africa. It could be a French. It could be anybody. And they really, they are proud of, of of saying that we're open to everybody. We are not tied to a country. We are not tied to a Sufi order. We are not tied to an ethnicity. And the their the major preoccupation is also to provide to young Africans of French descent a decent Muslim education, because they are very concerned about, as I write in the book, that it, the French state, uh, of course, ignore completely religion. It's not concerned about it. And as far as education is concerned, uh, Arab Muslims, they consider to be a little bit too radical, uh, really are leading the effort there. And they believe that they should provide an alternative Islamic education that can reconcile Islam with French identity. That is not controversial. So it's really their major role. Now you go to Ol Nesubwa, it's all about how do we preserve our Senegalese Muslim community here. Uh, Here, the emphasis is not on Friday prayer, but it's on Dahira meeting. Every Sunday uh, afternoon, people meet together share food, Uh, they sing Ahmed Bamba's Qasida, they do the community's business, they talk about newborn in the community, death in the community, events happening in Senegal and how to contribute. They raise money to help the community. They start to provide some Islamic education, but in the traditional way, it's done in Senegal. The teacher there is somebody who was sent by the sheikh in Senegal to continue. The teacher at Taverni is a former um, civil servant who actually is retired now, western educated, who is an alumni of the University of Dakar. He the one who is giving the, the economic, actually education in Taverni. So you can really see the differences. Uh, in in Taverni, they don't much really put much emphasis in socializing and in sharing food, which is a major uh, uh, religious ritual of the murid in Olnesubwa, It's very important, uh, especially to get the woman involved uh, to do the cooking, uh, to raise money, to organize events, to invite actually singers to come in to do those concert of uh, such concert of spiritual music at the Sufi do. So you really see here, uh, to some extent, two murid Muslim identities that are to some extent, really competing with each other. And sometimes you have tense relationship, as I explain in the book, between these two communities.
0: All right. Um, so then the book turns to New York City. Um, so how do the different trades and jobs the reads do kind of change over time? Because you provide a kind of overview of that in the book.
1: Yes, New York City is the last stage. Uh, people really started to come here in the late 70s. Uh, first, as sojourners, coming back, going back and forth, seasonal migrant, led mostly by women. First in the first, uh, and then the late 1970s, the early 1980s, you have a larger uh, migration flow coming in. Most of them are step migration, uh, step migrant, meaning migrating from Côte d'Ivoire from Europe. And from somewhere else. And they came here with the baggage. They have already some experience uh, walking, the street, walking the street of Paris, uh, perhaps walking the street of cities in West Africa and Central Africa. And then they came to New York and continued that same, uh, that same tradition. Um, you know, one thing that they will really very early on specialize in is taxi driving, which you don't see in France, which you don't see in Senegal cab driving become become really their main uh, occupation mostly um, driving taxis in the hot neighborhood of arlem Uh, not yellow cab driving, but, you know, uh, uh, those, uh, uh, I forgot the technical name of it, but Gypsy Gypsy cab driving. (laughs) Thank you. So, gypsy cab driving, uh, and many of them paying a toll, actually, uh, you know, doing that, because I talk about the number of of Murid and Senegalese actually died uh, in in the process of driving taxis in those hot neighbourhoods. And here also, what is significant in the role of women? Something you don't see anywhere else, which you see in New York with the number of, of women. Perhaps you know my my research among the Senegalese, uh, at particularly this, the Association of Senegalese in Senegal in 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 America, and also among other uh, Senegalese immigrants is there. Seem to be some kind of balance between the number of of Senegalese women and Senegalese men in Senegal in the migration. This is this is something unseen, never seen anywhere else. This is the only diaspora where the number of women may be equal to the number of men. And the reason for that is hair braiding. So hair braiding became really the gold mine of Senegalese women. They pioneered it actually. Now you have, of course, uh, women from almost all of West Africa being working as hairbreaders. And even beyond West Africa, I have seen Somali women, Sudanese women, actually working as hairbreaders. But the Senegalese women really pioneered this job uh, in Washington and then you know uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, and in New York. And women really are central to this. The third major job, which we see really here in, in New York, which you don't see elsewhere, is a restaurant. Uh many of you know what I'm talking about. If you've been to New York City and to Little Senegal, you certainly know about the number of Senegalese restaurants there. Um, the, the, uh, that are not really your typical restaurant until very recently, because these restaurants were also grand plus, Uh And all these uh, uh, places where Senegalese worked actually became grand Place. These are hangouts where really people go to socialize, drink tea, play card, and talk about politics and about wrestling, about soccer, the things that they will discuss when they were in Senegal, especially during the summer. So that the street life here is is really unique uh, compared to, for example, the street life uh, in other uh, part of the uh, Senegalese diaspora in Europe uh, and, and and in Africa. And this has something to say about the nature of multiculturalism uh, in the context of America. In France, where multiculturalism and what the French call communitarism is, 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 is really not welcome, or is unwelcome, you don't see this vibrancy of Murid culture in the city. And I think the kind of multiculturalism that you see in New York City, uh, which you can see in the form of all these cultural enclaves, for example, Little Italy, uh, uh, you know, uh, Chinatown, um, all of that to some extent uh, uh, made possible uh, Little Senegal and the other enclaves that you have in New York City where murid uh, culture and Senegalese culture in general is performed in, the pub- in public space.
0: Since you've mentioned a bit about Little Senegal, uh, can you share kind of what is the future of Little Senegal and kind of what are the challenges that, you know, currently uh, Little Senegal is facing?
1: Well, uh, uh, the future is really up in the air. It's not uh, 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 hopeful, (laughs) to say it mildly. Many of the people I uh, interviewed told me that it's just a matter of time. Before, uh, uh, little Senegal is completely gentrified, and the Africans who have been living there for more than twenty years, twenty-five years, uh, leave, uh, and less uh, a, a, the space to uh, more affluent uh, white uh, immigrants who are really taking over. In the in the book, I describe a little bit what is happening to businesses, because business benefit from rank, uh, rent protection, so that a number of the store Uh, owner that I interviewed when I started to work in this book, my first (laughs) uh, field work in Mm 1996-97. They are no longer around. Uh, I talk about that store uh, which used to sell Moorid religious paraphernalia which was really the headquarters of everybody, all search, uh, researchers coming to do research on Senegalese, West African in general, and in particular, that the hangout. That's where you go. I used to go there to buy cassettes and DVDs at the time when we had cassettes and DVDs, to buy religious texts, to buy stuff, and just to hang out and discuss, discuss with people. That place has left because they can no longer afford paying the rent. Um Restaurants are also moving further south where rent is affordable. Uh, many people are uh, who actually still live there are contemplating uh, moving because uh, they are being offered money they can't just refuse uh, because gentrification had made rent so uh, uh, profitable now that, uh, uh, you know, uh, the owner of those buildings are ready to pay $50,000 just for people to leave and to go to other places. There is a restaurant that left uh, three years ago. Uh, the owner actually told them that he was going to pay for the rent wherever they go for, some, for a number of months and give them cash to go. So the gentrification is really taking over little uh, Senegal. And uh, I'm sad uh, to say that perhaps for a future generation would not continue to build in my own research and, and to look at the future of, of Little Senegal, but because it looks like Little Senegal no longer has any future.
0: Yeah, some of the, the money that you cited was pretty mind-boggling in that chapter, just like how much people were being offered uh, yeah. to vacate. Uh, you also detail in this section the relationship between Morid migrants and the African-American community um, in Harlem and you know, New York City more broadly um, so first sort of what was their relationship like with the nation of Islam when they sort of first started arriving
1: there was not a formal relationship with the nation of Islam uh, and by the time the murid started to come to New York in greater numbers the uh, what is Din Muhammad, who was the successor of Alija Muhammad and who is a mainstream Muslim, really was the dominant figure of Islam in Arlem at that time. So the Malcolm Sabah's uh, temple was transformed into Malcolm Sabah's mosque. Uh, and the relationship they built in the beginning, really they built with Walis Din Muhammad, uh, who had become part of what you might say, uh, a kind of orthodox Islam, or mainstream uh, mainstream islam now what is interesting with regard to nation islam is what i discovered in my research is many of the early american african american who joined the muridia are all the followers of the nation islam Many of them, including here in Philadelphia, where, we live, where I live, where the leader of the Murid community, African American Murid community, many of them told me that actually they followed the Nation Islam before they left and came to the Muridia. And what is interesting here is that uh, for many of these African American Murid, they were really not satisfied with the alternative to the nation of Islam. When they went to orthodoxy or when they went with the mainstream Islam, they were not satisfied with the alternative. What is the alternative? These are mosques led by South Asian or led by Arabs. And many of them felt uh, unwelcome to some extent, some even talking about uh, 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 kind of racial insensitivities and things of that sort. But I think what they were looking for really was an Islamic identity that tie Islam to the way they imagine Africa and Islam in Africa. And many of them were looking something that can link them back to Timbuktu, to Jenne, to Gao, to the... Uh, vibrant history of Islam in medieval Africa. Many of them knew about this. Perhaps most of them did not learn about it at school, but it's really part of the kind of Muslim identity in America. Some even talk about the early Muslim that were enslaved and brought to America. They know about the history of Job Ben Solomon uh, and other Muslims that were actually came here in antebellum America, and they kind of tie their Muslim. They wanted to tie their Muslim identity in the 20th century to a deeper connection uh, with African Islam. And for some of them, the Muridiya offered that alternative. That through the Muridiya they see Timbuktu, through the Muridiya they see Gao, and even through the Muridiya they see their ancestry. Uh, that are some of those early Muslim that were enslaved and brought to America uh, during the during the uh, Atlantic slave trade era.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, just like how completely opposite of a view it is from sort of the stereotypes that get brought about by Islam Noir, for example, by the French. Um, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I wonder too how much the the TV series Roots sort of plays um, into that kind of interest and uh, getting back to sort of Islam as practiced uh, in Africa, I think it
1: has some it has some effect. Probably everybody that interview actually knew about roots. One of them who is from Cleveland told me clearly that the two things that brought me to the Muridia was Alex Ale and Malcolm X. <laughs> clearly making the connection just you just talk about that Kunta Kinte was a Muslim uh, and that uh, the the uh, among the 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 the, uh, the the crime of slavery was erasing completely the identity of the enslaved the enslaved. and erasing your identity also included erasing your culture and muslim islam as they imagine it be one of the central element of those of those precolonial uh, uh those the uh identity of those Muslims that were enslaved and brought here so some of them really did, that, did have that connection in mind when they wanted to connect with an Islam that resonate better with the way they imagine their Muslim identity.
0: One person who comes up is Belosi Harvey, who has a really mm-hmm. fascinating background. I mean, just his biography was really interesting. So who mm-hmm. was he and kind of how does he become an important figure to the Moridia in Harlem?
1: Fascinating character. Uh, Balouzi's parents were followers of Marcus Gave. so he was already nationalist. I mean, it is in his family culture. Nationalism was central to to his identity growing up, uh, and uh, he converted to Islam after traveling to Tanzania to meet Julius Nyerere, and particularly the vice president of Tanzania at the time. Uh, that vice president's son uh, was. Uh, uh, studied with um, with Balazi Sea Hall where they went together school and that's how he got actually to travel to Tanzania. And that's really where he uh, converted to Islam. and then the relationship with uh, Nyerere continued even after he returned from from Tanzania. Uh, he was, Called uh, Balozi, Balozi meaning an ambassador, a representative, uh, uh, a mediator uh, in Swahili. And he was very much involved in helping Nyerere hire African american who could actually help as advisors uh, uh, in his socialist project uh, in Tanzania. His relationship with the Muridia uh, really developed after he met with Sheikh Murtada, who is the youngest son of Ahmed Obama, uh, in uh, around 1988. Uh, and his trip to Senegal this is also connecting to you to, to Roots because his trip to Senegal was linked to the Roots Festival which the president of the Gambia actually organized for, for African American tourism to visit uh, the uh, uh, village where uh, reportedly uh, Kunta Kinte was from so that's during this visit actually he saw pictures, and art form that he saw in a movie that was about the muridia So he immediately connected the two. A movie he watched, this is a, a documentary uh, that he watched here in the United States, which was had, had a segment on the muridia and the art he saw in an art shop run by a Muridiyah. He asked about that. He asked about, well, who is this guy? I mean, the picture of Muhammad Obama, the iconic picture of Muhammad Obama. And the storekeeper told him, oh, he's my sheikh. Uh, and he's, actor. Acto, I can take him to his son who is Sheikh Murtada, who is very much, um, you know, a knowledgeable man that you might want to know. And that's how the thing started. The year after Sheikh Murtada traveled to the United States, wanted to meet him, he met with Balosi, and that was history. Balosi introduced him to the leadership of, uh, of, of, of New York City, the Black African leadership of New York City, and the uh, festival called Ahamudu Bamba Day was decided that day, July 27, 1988, became really the most important Muret celebration abroad, and that's how the history started. But I think Balozi was, was really somebody who was, to some extent, uh, prepared. Uh, to be a follower of of the Muridiya and to be a follower of Islam in particular. His nationalist um, leaning, uh, the fact that he he, he very early on um, considered Islam as something important for the identity of uh, of an African-American and his conversion in Tanzania, his return here in the United States as his continuing adherence to Islam and his search uh, his quest, like the other uh, African-American intellectual that I discussed, his quest really for connection to African Islam is the path really to kind of regenerate and rejuvenate Islam in the United States.
0: Another important figure you bring up is Mustafa Mbake. Um, so how is he significant to the Mordia in New York City, as well as his wife? Um...
1: Yes, he's a great grandson of Omar Bamba uh he went to western education uh, had a baccalaureate uh in senegal then migrated uh to the us uh reportedly to continue his education but uh finally uh, decided that he was going to continue to be a sheikh <laughs> because the murid needed a sheikh here in new york so he became a sheikh he was the one who has Amadou bamba's blood who is the closest uh to to Dubai and to the holy city in Senegal. And he, he was a very smart young man at that time. Um, he understood uh, the value of the diaspora for the muridia at that time. Perhaps many people did not understand it uh, and how organizing the diaspora here uh, would actually benefit not only the Murid living here to preserve their identity, maybe to share it with others, but also to help the Murid project uh, back in Senegal. So he was the first one to really organize a diary in a formal way. Murid always have this diary, this religious institution they bring everywhere. He was the one who asked them to organize and to form one diary that unite the whole uh, Murid diaspora in the United States. He was the first one to tell them, uh, to advise them to buy a house for the Muridia. Here, uh, in New York City, he was also the one who, many of my uh, interview, believe, brought Sheikh Motada here, because he felt that they needed a glue that could bridge all the conflicting lineages within the Muridia. There's a lot of tension within the Muridia itself. And the one who could bridge those tension was a son of Ahmad Obama, because he's uncontestable. Nobody will contest whatever he said. So he brought them here, he brought him here, and he really institutionalized the muridia in the diaspora. He was involved in Ahmad Obama Day, in the in the conferences, uh, the, the kind of lecture at the United Nations and the parade and all those initiatives that were taken really to try to turn New York into a mulit space, it was very central to uh, actually uh, doing all of that.
0: Um, Then, you know, something that comes up in this section as well as other um, parts of this book is that Sheikh Madhu Bamba's writings on race and kind of how they gain new relevance in the diaspora. So can you kind of expand on that a bit?
1: Yes. Amur Bamba did not extend really too much, he did not write too much on race. Uh, I don't know, I only know of one instance where he uh, kind of clearly addressed the issue of race. One in his text where he said he talked about uh, black people not being stupid. Uh, and that God has created human beings equal, uh, and that knowledge doesn't belong to one race, uh, that it's a gift that God has given to all humanity, and black people, and other people too, other person too. And he's, uh, in his own uh, in his biography, wrote by one of his disciples, uh, I read uh, places where Ahmed Obama said that he would not give his daughters uh, to a moor, Uh, because the culture is not the same. Uh, And places where he said he felt racism, actually in Mauritania, when he was there... visiting but also in exile and that he felt that those people who actually treated him the way they treat him don't understand Islam, don't understand the teaching of the Prophet Muhammad because what the Prophet values is closeness to him, is following his guidance and nobody on earth did it better than him. So yeah, in those instances really. But what is really interesting that in the diaspora, particularly in the United States not in France, but particularly in the United States, this became uh, really a big aspect of their outreach uh, uh, effort toward African Americans. And when you look at, for example, the parade, the uh, 28th July parade, there is always a banner that talk about race. That said, Ahmad Obama uh, brought, you know, freedom um, to, to black people everywhere, uh, the idea that uh, black people are not stupid. I mean, just the a discourse that very much aligns also with the racial discourse in the United States uh in 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 particularly uh in Harlem. And and my reading of this is that these people are clearly understood who they are. They understood their multiple identities and they can juggle their identities and they can uh, showcase uh, which aspect of that identity uh, could be attractive uh, in, in space and time. Uh, for example, when you have a parade in New York City uh, where you have Africans working on the street, but their audience uh, are African American, it makes sense to bring race. It makes sense to bring Islam and race, to talk about Islam as a religion that ignores race. To talk about Amadou Bamba as a man who uh, black people should be proud of, uh, and so forth. So this really uh, shows that these murids are very much aware of the politics of identity in the United States, and things that they might not see—they might not see as particularly significant in Senegal and France—they see it particularly relevant in the United States, and they do most, uh, they're most actually to use it in order to uh, have relevance in the context of American uh, culture.
0: Another thing that gets brought up the most in the sections on New York is how sort of issues with generation, um, especially sort of how um, the youth in the Moridia in New York City, which, you know, at this point is a lot of people who are, you know, second generation Senegalese Americans, uh, often have a different kind of approach than their elders, um, particularly in kinds of, uh, you know, willingness to say, use the Internet as a form of outreach and I'm wondering, too, if, you know, with the Internet, you see a kind of decrease of burden on kind of physical acts of, of placemaking a little bit, because now, you know, the Internet provides this other sort of space to do that.
1: I have not seen that yet. Certainly COVID forced, forced the Muri to move online. You cannot do parade. You cannot do those gatherings. You cannot do sharing of food. Yes, a mood were forced actually online because of, of COVID, but so far I haven't seen any particular uh, impact that the internet is having on space making. Yes, but I think among the youth, you see different strategies of of space making. They are very much comfortable in turning the internet into Murid space. This we didn't see before. Uh, Physical space was very significant for the early generation of Murid. For the young Murid, particularly the group that I I talk about briefly, Ndawi, Tuba, Amadou Bamba's missionary, they clearly see first that proselytism is important. They are not very much concerned, like their elders, about preserving Islamic identity and Murid identity. They think that learning English and speaking to the the English, uh, to the uh, American audience, is very important. They think that co-opting uh, American public culture is very important. And I, by public culture, I, and the performance of culture, I mean having barbecue uh, in park, uh, inviting people, even those who don't know what's going on, just calling them, hey, ca- come share our food and so forth. Really being quite relaxed, open. And uh, um, yeah, they believe that. And also using the internet. You know, they have their websites uh, where they advertise their events. Uh, they have uh, 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 places with Instagram, With they have uh, Facebook pages. They very much see the internet as a space that provides opportunity for spreading Ahmad Obama's message. They have not yet uh, 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 completely uh, ruptured their relationship with the elders but they find a space they can occupy while continuing to serve the community in some capacity.
0: All right. I wonder if you can reflect um, a little bit on the paths kind of not taken in your research. So, for example, uh, you mentioned Italy a little bit. And then when I looked sort of through your list of interviews, I noticed that you did um, interview many people in Philadelphia, which I understand is, you know, where you live. But also, Ohio and some other places that kind of don't get brought up in the book. Um, so, I wondered, kind of, how did you decide sort of where to leave out? And do these perhaps represent, you know, potential future areas of research for you?
1: Path not taken. <laughs> I, like, I like your articulation, your idea here. Well, Path must taken mean a different book. The book I imagine when I first did my interview in New York City in 1996, 97 was to write a book about murid immigrants in the Western world. That's, that was my book. I wanted to write a book on murid in New York and then murid in, in Europe. And in Europe, I had three sides. I had France, Spain, Italy, and then the United States. That's the book I was thinking that I'm going to write. But then as often happened with books, my own fieldwork told me that this is not the book you want to write because my understanding is i, can't, I cannot write the history of these murid immigrant without following in their footsteps first as a historian i have to do justice to their trajectory i can't just have an editorial decision that this is the book i'm going to write and when i started to do interviews across the United States, those cities that you actually talk about, and then also in Europe. I realized that almost every single migrant I talked to took me back to Africa, to Senegal first, and then to Cote d'Ivoire and to Gabon. They would tell me, okay, there is. I was a farmer somewhere, and then the drought stuck in the 1970s, we couldn't make any living in the countryside, then I moved to Dakar, and then did some work in the city there, and then I moved to Cote d'Ivoire, And then from Côte d'Ivoire, I went to France, and then I went somewhere. So almost there is this kind of step migration going on. I realized that as a historian, to do justice to my sources, I have to go back. So I scrapped my my first outline, and then I went back to Senegal, did these two chapters on Saint Louis Louis and Dakar, then did these chapters in Côte d'Ivoire, and did a chapter in, in Gabon before going to Europe and to to uh, to to, uh, to the united states and what i realize is you cannot really do justice to a history of transnational african migrant without without having a grasp of internal african migration it's impossible to do that um inner in africa migration and out African migration are completely intertwined in the trajectory of these migrants. And we've, to some extent, many scholar of migration, me included, as my first project really showed, is we really don't, don't that migration on the African continent is almost invisible. You, you really don't see it. Because what you see in the scholarship, particularly in the post-colonial era, is what people call the exodus of Africans, out of the continent. You, you, you have narrative of, of desperate uh, asylum seekers uh, and refugees, this um, coarse migration uh, of, of desperate Africans uh, to Europe and to the United States to, this, to some extent. But the reality is, um, out of every three African migrant, two stay in the continent. African, Africa has had the highest rate of intercontinental migration of all continent so i really wanted to to get back to tell that story which i think has not been told to the extent it needs to be i have i haven't seen any work any serious work really from a historical perspective that look at International uh, internal African migration, and particularly make this connection between inner Africa and outer African migration. So the path that was taken, or well, that path I just described, the path was not taken was well, the international migration uh, disconnected uh, from African uh, Africa's uh, internal migration.
0: Great. Uh, well, Professor Babu, we've taken up enough of your time, but. My final question is: uh, What are you working on now, or what do you imagine your your next project might be? Yeah,
1: well, I'm returning back to what historians actually do, <laughs> <laughs> mostly a deeply contested history of the uh, the third successor of Ahmad Bamba. His name is Abdul Ahad, and he is really a transformative transformative figure of the Muridiya. And I'm looking at his, his history and it's, it's really fascinating because his life took a trajectory that nobody predicted. Nobody predicted that he was, have, he was going to have the kind of transformative leadership that he had. I would like to know what it is in his own life that really make him to book the train and to do, th- to do things uh, a way that is so surprising to everybody.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation. I hope you have a good rest of your day.
1: Thank you for having me.